Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everybody. My name is Dave Morales, and we are about to enter the House Culture Podcast with yours truly. House Culture. Hi everyone and welcome to a brand new episode in season two of the House Culture podcast. I'm your host and the managing editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. It feels great to be talking to you live and direct and providing a taste of much missed clubland for your ears. Stay strong people, the new year is going to be a positive one, I can feel it. If you haven't been listening to our triumphant second season, we've already featured chats with the likes of Fatboy Slim himself, Norman Cook, icon of Ibiza, Dawn Hindle, big man, Tall Paul, house music originator, Danny Rampling, New Jersey's finest DJ and producer, Harry Romero, the godfather of rave himself, Slipmat, plus many more. And if you want to get even deeper into our back catalogue, you can get crate digging through season one, which features conversations with scenesters such as Danny Clockwork, John Satrencher, Greg Wilson and Terry Farley. Honestly, if you don't recognise the name, have a listen as we make sure that everybody on the pod has a fascinating story to tell. Also, if you've only just discovered this podcast and are wondering what house culture is all about, our credo is that we are a collective of house music fans who have come together through our mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. We're on Instagram at housecultureNet, so come join us on the virtual dance floor there where we can come together to support and nurture this beautiful scene. Let's get moving with this episode, shall we? We're coming towards the end of this second season, but don't worry. We're going to finish off with a tasty triumvirate of talent, and it's an honour to introduce the first of those three. It's the one and only David Morales. In this chat, we discover how David landed his first Manhattan gig at the iconic Paradise Garage. I got booked. I played Friday and Saturday, 11 hours each night back to back. My first New York club to play at was the mecca of the world, and it was the Paradise Garage. I was 21 years old. We get the lowdown behind the creation of his most successful track to date. 
So I do this stupid sample record in 1997 called Needing You. I'm playing it out and DJs are like, yo, what is this track? Ah, something I just slapped together. To this day, 20 years later, it's the biggest thing I've ever done. It's a record that's made me the most money in my life. It's, it's hilarious. He also tells us just what it takes to break a new record in a club environment. You get a new record, you can't wait to play at the club. When you're playing for 10, 15 hours, you get that one record that's crazy. Guarantee you're gonna play that shit five, anywhere from five to eight times, maybe even 10. You're gonna what? bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. And you're gonna work that record that by the time maybe the next week it's like, yo, I hope you play that record again. And the secret behind the success of his Sunday mass live streams. I've developed a core audience that really that tune in and, and it's like, you know, like the old days when friends all went to the same club and they caught up, you know what I mean? They danced with each other and they had a conversation with each other. It's amazing to be able to do this virtually, which I never in a million years expected this. So it's just become something that I really look forward to. So get yourself ready for a sit down with one of house music's finest. This is David Morales. culture hi david welcome to the house culture podcast it's a real honor to have you join us you're a world-renowned dj grammy award-winning producer a remixer for legendary artists such as mariah carey u2 aretha franklin and madonna wow i mean however we always want to hear about the beginning of our guests musical journey Can you tell us about your experiences with music when you were growing up in Brooklyn, in New York? My parents immigrated from Puerto Rico when they were young. My mother had me when she was 17, which was 1962. (laughs) (laughs) And my parents, of course, they were into Latin music. Mm -hmm. And we lived in Brooklyn, in a ghetto in Brooklyn. And we had a social club. Because in every ghetto, you know, you had like these social clubs that was like flat black, they go pink, jukebox. And I had one like right below my house. And I'm talking about five, six years old. You know what I mean? Where the door was open to my house. It's like there was no, it's like the way I used to walk out of my house that the door was open. I don't know how my how I was able to get away with that thing because my, my kid won't leave my house at 10, 11 years old. You're not leaving my sight. I know where you're going and I'm holding your hand. Okay. <laughs> so I, I would find myself downstairs. You know what? I gravitated towards black music. Mm-hmm. I like funk. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking about the Temptations, the Jackson 5, Juan Ads, Isaac Hayes, the OJs. Yeah. That is not in the pips. I like black music. I like funk. I mean, I I, I, I wasn't into Elton John. I like funk. Mm-hmm. So somebody used to find my way downstairs into this club, blah, blah, blah. And then I, I you know, I just, I, I like music. You know what I mean? Even though in my parents' house, our house that they play Latin music and I couldn't stand it. I get dragged to the family house parties and whatnot. And I would find myself, let's talk about what the bedroom that was the coat check where they throw all the coats on the bed. But, and I would just watch TV. I mean, I didn't want to be, I just didn't want to be bothered with that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. As now here that I've become this producer, songwriter, la, 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 la. Now I appreciate my roots of music mm-hmm. and the showmanship, the musicianship that went into Latin music. Now I understand what that thing, and I'm sorry that I didn't pick up on that, that that wasn't my influence. You mm-hmm. understand? Yeah. Now I get it, but that wasn't my roots. I bought my first 45, I must have been about 11 years old. 
was the OJs put your hands together. I'm Philly International. I don't know how I got the sense. When I mean sense, C-E-N-T-S, listen, because you don't have a job when you're 11 years old. So somehow where they were getting, <laughs> and, you know, 45 Zen were, you know, they were about, I don't know, 75 cents, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. For seven inch 45. Take that thing home and I will blast that thing, you know, under stereo at home until my parents told me, yo, cut it out. You understand what I'm saying? Because they weren't into that music, you know. Mm-hmm. When I first saw a DJ, I was 13 years old. And I was dating a girl. And this was when disco was like coming up. Mm-hmm. And we went to hang out to some person's house, you know, where, where we all went to smoke weed. And this guy had a setup. He had two decks of mixing. And I was like, wow. Because before that, I spent a lot of years living with my aunt and my cousins. And they had a nice stereo in their house. I mean, they had it better than we did. I mean, my, my uncle had a good job. Mm-hmm. They had toys. They had bicycles. I never had a bike when I was young. <laughs> But they had a Marantz amplifier, and it was like, wow. And Marantz was big in them days, you know yeah, what I mean? You have yeah, Marantz, yeah. turntable speakers. And I was like, wow, you know what I mean? I was like, wow. So it was cute. And so as opposed to what we had in our house, that was like this huge, older kind of thing. I was like, wow. And I saw that. And then when I was 14, I was hanging out with, with friends of mine. There was We didn't have two decks yet. You got no job, so the two decks doesn't exist. Before that, my friends would say, yo, D, play some music for us. Mm-hmm. And I would just sit next to the stereo and just play music. I was a selector. My job, yo, play some music for us. Yeah. Okay, we smoke some weed, blah, 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 blah. Because that's what you do when you're teenagers. You know, or drink beer. Take the one speaker, put it out the window. Yeah. I mean, what the hell? My first 12-inch I bought was double exposure 10% mm-hmm. on South Soul Records. Yeah. And I remember taking that record, and it's like, I couldn't play that record enough. It's like, forget about it. I must have played it a hundred times. My mother wanted to kill me. <laughs> so then the evolution of the two decks came out. Mm-hmm. So that was when I was about 15. We had the blackout. And blackout was 1977, I believe. Yeah. And my first mixer was from the blackout. <laughs> it, was a, it was a Radio Shack mic mixer. There was no queuing. But we Jimmy, I buy Jimmy did, you know, so he can work for two turntables. The first two turntables were mismatched turntables. One had pitch control, one didn't have pitch control. But it really didn't matter because you were just excited to just have, it was just something that was put together like if it was MacGyver, you understand? <laughs> but it really it really didn't matter because it was just something, and you were just happy, right? Mm-hmm. So I told people, I learned how to mix Braille, okay? So let's say really, it was like David Mancuso style at the loft where it was, there was no headphones. It wasn't about mixing records. It was from one record to the next. You know what I mean? So that was really that. When I went to a house party in the Bronx with with some friends of mine, and I first saw, I touched the first mix. It was a Clubman one mixer. This was San Francisco by the Village People Was Out, Mm -hmm. which was one of the first big disco records at that time. But I was into Tramps. I was into Eddie Kendricks. Or, you know what I mean? I was into James Brown. I was into Jimmy Casterbond. You know what I mean? I was into Black Funk. So my friend's like, I'm watching this guy. He's got headphones on. Mm -hmm. He's queuing. I was like, what is he doing? Yeah. Okay. I had, my boy was like, yo, D, you want to play some records? I was like, yeah, sure. So playing with the other guy's records, of course, because, you know, I didn't take any records. And I put on the headphones, like, and I picked a switch cue, and I was like, oh, shit. I was trying to act like I knew what I was doing, but I didn't know what I was doing. And I still played Braille because I knew my records. Yeah. So that was my first time touching the mix and really... But the, the whole, listen, I've done in high school hooky parties. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't be saying these things. <laughs> well, I charge a dollar. 
uh, where I say, here's a free hooky party, free joints and free beer and a dollar ticket in, okay? So we will wait for somebody's parents to leave the house. We bring in a full fucking sound system. Okay, all the kids that will cut class, come to somebody's apartment, we took the furniture, Lord have mercy. When I think about what, what was in them days, it's like, can you imagine? And we made sure everybody was out by three o'clock. So by the time the person's parents came home, but yo, could you imagine the parents from people putting their feet up against? I mean, listen, we're talking about having 50 kids, 75 kids in an apartment at a party, people hanging outside, out the windows. So my thing was, I knew people, you know, I didn't have a sound system. I, I used to go to school. I had a record store on the way to school. I would go to go inside that record store every day. I used to steal records, okay, because I had a big store. I, you know what I mean, I had no money, so I, so I, you know, I would steal records, but I had a big store with, with like big collections and everything. And you know, I was every day in that record store. Mm -hmm. It's like going by stores that sold DJ equipment. And you fantasize. It's like, oh my God, my God. It's like I had people that had equipment that were in DJ. They would invite me to their house. And it's like I'd be itching, like waiting for them to say, You want to play some music? I'd say, yes, 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 yes. Because all I wanted to do was play records. Mm -hmm. People don't know as far as and when you had to carry all your records to a gig, all your crates. So you took every single record you owned to a party, even though you're not playing all of them. Not like today. Okay, even like the last of the last, even the last 15 years where you go to a set, okay, you carry two boxes because you know that's all you're going to need to play a one hour, two hour set. Mm. But back then you played the whole nine. It was like you took everything man, and that shit was work. Even the little system that you carried. So, you know, for the $15 to $25, I mean, you really weren't making nothing at the end of the day. But once again, mm. let's look at this. We're not talking about there was a culture. So you really did it because you loved it. It had nothing to do about money. So it wasn't that you were famous. It wasn't about people wanted to see you because you played in a little hole in the wall somewhere in the corner. You was in a bedroom. You was in the kitchen. It's like there was no monitors. There was nothing. Mm -hmm. But I lived to play, you understand? So it was even though it was playing in the club and there was nobody dancing for free. It was like, I didn't care. I just wanted to play. That's the whole concept. Now we move later to when I'm 18, 19. Okay, now I start to do some house parties. And then I started to go to the loft. How did you, how did you first hear about the loft? There were some older kids, older kids, mm -hmm. or some older people from my neighborhood that used to go to the loft. And I used to hear about the loft. You know, there was this, this girl, I'm still friends with today. And, you know, she was gorgeous at that time. She was like, everybody knew her so she she did a party and she asked me to play. So I played. I was like 16 years old. Okay, it was all the disco stuff, whatever. Okay, that was, so that was the first time. And the second time I played for her, it was for a surprise party. And all their friends that came all used to go to the loft. So they gave me a bunch of records. They were like, here's some loft tracks. I've never been to the loft. And they were like, yo, check this out, check this out. And I was like, wow, where's this music? Because I knew commercial music. I didn't go to Vinyl Mania. I went to mm -hmm. Downtown Records, where it's funny. You go to Downtown Records and, okay, yo, what's New York? I got, I got, I got one of these hot bootlegs. You were like, oh my God, I got a hot bootleg. You know what I'm saying? But it was like the commercial stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I used to play, yeah. I used to do some, there was a way uh, back in Brooklyn, back in the day, there were the Jamaicans and Trinidadians used to do these big parties with big sound systems, like really massive, massive. I used to work for one guy to play the American set, Good Times by Sheik, 
you know, Coon and the Gang, you know what I mean? The Whispers, it's the stuff that you heard on radio. Yeah. Now we go forward to I do this party and somebody brings me tracks because they used to go to the loft. And I was like, wow, what is his music? Imports, what is, what, what is these records? You know what I'm saying? Where do I get these records? Yeah. So I started to go to the loft. Then I started to do some parties in Brooklyn based after the idea of the loft. I mean, I became a loft member. Mm -hmm. Somebody took me to the loft because you had to be sponsored by a member. I became friends yeah. with, Dave, with David Mancuso. I, I used to write graffiti. I, I painted a shirt for him. He wore the shirt. I'm so happy. I, I made a poster for the loft and they put it up at the loft. You know, he gave me books on sound. I, I, you know, I was a long tech. Now, I also went to the Paradise Garage on a Friday because I was a dancer. I was a mm -hmm. clubber. And I did everything that goes with clubbing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I used to do LSD. I was one of those kids from, I'd be in a club for 12 hours. I was there when it opened. I went to dance. I went to represent. I was one of those crazy dancers. I take a change of clothes because when the loft in the garage, there was no alcohol. Everybody was on masculine, LSD, psychedelic drugs. Mm -hmm. But they gave you water. They gave you fruit. They gave you nutritious food. They carried you during the whole day. In the morning, you had coffee. You had donuts. You had tea. You remember, you paid their mission, but there was no alcohol. But they took care of you. It wasn't like you pay your mission fee and everything else was on the house. Yeah, You understand? Everything was on the house. So I went to a garage a couple of times on a Friday. And then when I started to do my, my parties on a Friday in Brooklyn, it was a spinoff of what the garage and the loft was. Because mm -hmm. so, I lived in Brooklyn and a lot of people in my neighborhood used to go to the loft on Saturdays. We would go to the loft on Saturday. I started to do my parties on a Friday. Before I started to do my parties on Friday, and I started in 1981. Prior to that, I went to the garage about 10 times as a dancer. So the garage Friday was straight, Saturday was gay. Mm -hmm. So I was doing my parties. I would make my flyers on my, on my lunch break. I would paste them up train stations, bus stations in the street. I would lick envelopes for the mailing list. I would put up balloons. I would buy fruit and I would do my party was from 11 at night to nine in the morning. Wow. And you were the only, you were the only DJ? I was the only DJ. Amazing. And then a few years later, I invited Kenny Carpenter to play with me because Kenny and Kenny had just finished playing at Bonds International. It was probably one of the, it was the biggest club in New York at the time. It was in Times Square, Bonds International. And I, I met Kenny because Kenny lived in my, he was my next door neighbor and we got introduced and we ended up becoming good friends. So it, I mean, it was hard for Kenny. They went from a club that holds 5,000 people to a club that was hold 300, 400 people. And, you know, Kenny knew other DJs. So there, there, was, a, there was another DJ called, named called Burt Bevins that moved from New York to London mm -hmm. and Bert used to bring us these new imports in 1983 Bert bought us Dindada okay. George Crantz yeah now Dindada was like uh, so Kenny's playing so I'm in a money booth and I'm in this fucking record Dindada do 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 <laughs> I run for the fuck what the fuck is this record what, what is this record mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying it was like some new fresh it was just something else. And so in Brooklyn, we had the underground club. Mm -hmm. In 1983, I joined the record pool, Judy Weinstein's record pool called For the Record, that had all the top DJs in the tri-state area because you had to play in clubs that were part of the record pool. Mm -hmm. So Kenny Carpenter brought me to the record pool. I joined the record pool. Now, there was a lot of big famous DJs at the time, Bruce Forrest, T. Scott, Kenny Carpenter, Tony Humphreys. I was with Kenny Carpenter in my house. I was 21 years old. Mm -hmm. I have never played in Manhattan. 
So I got a call from the owner of the Paradise Garage. Hi, my name is Mike Brody. Everybody knew. It's like, you knew David Mancuso was a law. You know who owned the garage. On the scene, you just knew who was where. And the guy says, um, hi, my name is Mike Brody. I own a club called the Paradise Garage. And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> who the fuck is this? <laughs> You're fucking pulling my leg or what? You know, I own the club called the Paradise Garage. I wanted you to play in my club. I was like, you got to be kidding me. And I got Kenny Carmen who that. Kenny deserves to play the garage before me. Mm-hmm. Kenny's already played at Studio 54, Bombs International, The Inferno. I never played in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. You understand? Mm-hmm. My first New York club to play at was the Mecca of the world. And it was the Paradise Garage. I was 21 years old. Wow. How did he get your number? How did that call happen from his point of view? Judy Weinstein recommended me. Okay, yeah. So they wanted somebody that was, isn't, there was a lot of politics. Mm-hmm. There was always politics in the game. You're talking about the gay world, this. With Larry LeVan, it was politics. Mm-hmm. Larry LeVan, he didn't own the garage, but he was the king of the garage. Make no mistake. So when the, the owner says, I want, our DJ's been playing like shit and we want you to come and play. I was like, you got to be kidding me. He, he never heard me play. No way. Not a tape, nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Just on a recommendation. Just on a recommendation. I was 21 years old. He says, I want you to come play in my club. I want you to come play for a weekend. Friday and Saturday. Not just one night. Let me try you out. Friday and Saturday. And Friday was straight because mm-hmm. I went on a straight night. Yeah. I never played for a gay crowd. And everybody knew the garage on Saturday was gay where they, they barely didn't let in any women unless you were VIP. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't think I can handle the Saturday because I never played for a gay crowd. He's like, I just want you to come in and play music. Okay. He said, trust me, you love it. I said, okay. I got booked. I played Friday and Saturday, 11 hours each night, back to back. (laughs) They said, who would you like to perform? Who would you like to perform? I said, I want Jocelyn Brown. 1983, Jocelyn Brown, High, and there was another ad, I forgot, uh, Captain Rap, uh, Mm -hmm. called uh, Bad Times. And after that, the following year, they brought me back for two two, two more weekends straight. Friday, Saturday, Friday, Saturday. Yeah, yeah. Now the talk of the town was like, how? And wait, and they and they they promoted me and my venue. They they had a marquee. They brought from the ozone layer. It was like, I was like, I was I was caught like on a fish on a hook. Mm-hmm. I would leave my club. So Kenny, yo, I'm leaving you to play. I'm gonna go out to hang out. <laughs> you know <what> I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm the new kid on the block now. And let me tell you, I went from some rinky-dinky setup that I had that for me was amazing. I go to the Paddy Garage. This was Star Trek shit. And as I'm saying, the council, the Richard Long booth is like, nobody in the world has ever had a DJ booth to this day like Larry LeVan. Mm-hmm. To this day like yeah. Larry LeVan. Yeah. He had that council that was, it was on hydraulics. And back then DJs, most DJs did their lighting. So even though there was a major light guy, but he had a lighting console on a rack that he could bypass, he can bypass. He was like, he had, for his records, for his crates, he had a carousel. He didn't have to move, he spun that shit around. Two reel, two reels. First of all, they didn't even have techniques. They had thorns, 125s, Mark twos, And I was like, putting some techniques, and they were like, no. I was like, Shh. I never played any turntables before. Oh, man. Mind you, no monitors made. Because so DJs are spoiled today about monitors. There were no monitors. And the booth was like, yo, it was like on a balcony. You had to play with a delay. 
in all of them clubs in them days, you had to play with a delay. No money is made. And all those records were live. We're not talking about house records from today. Mm-hmm. So old records were live. The shit moved. And we're talking about, we were right. We, we were playing three decks. So when I told people, I went to Harvard, I went to Yale, I went to UCLA, I graduated <laughs> cum laude and fucking DJ school, mate. I played on every kind of turntable from the 1100As to the 1800s to the 1500s to the B1s to the D1s to the 1200s. Yo, every turntable has its own character. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? The Thorns 125, we're talking about plus three and minus three pitch control. We're not talking about plus eight and minus eight. Bell driven. The platter alone weighs like 10 pounds. Oh my God. You, you understand? Yeah. But it's straight but it was a different science so and then after that of course i became a big name on the scene really that's where my thing that's where my thing took off really mm-hmm. after i played the garage was like like i said there were other djs that deserved to play there yeah but i was used i got used at that time i didn't know i got yo i was a knucklehead from brooklyn with a sheepskin <laughs> my all-star a shell adidas i mean i was hardcore Mm-hmm. Now that as I look back, I realize I got used drama. Yeah, you know I mean, because Larry has so much influence that nobody would dare step in there mm-hmm. if he didn't say so. But me, who the fuck is Larry? For me, I was like, well, I, you know, I'm not part of the scene. I'm not part of the politics. Even though I'm sure when I went to play there that everybody was throwing knives behind my back. But I, I didn't understand anything. And of course, you know, be, being in a record pool, you know, I was surrounded by like all these amazing remixers, T. Scott, Lila Van, Francois Kaborke, Jelabine Benitez, Steve Thompson, Bruce Forrest. And I, I started I started running the record pool. So I would have some of these top guys like, I mean, Steve Thompson's one of the greatest remixers, producers, rock that went on to Metallica and Guns N' Roses. He would come in and say, check out the new Rolling Stones I did or check out this. And it's like, Oh, wow, 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 wow. You know what I mean? And then, you know, I got invited into a studio and, you know, I, I started editing. You know, mm-hmm. I have no musician skills or nothing. I started editing. And from there, you know, you buy your little gear. Uh, the first club I played was playing at a club called Better Days. Bruce Fires was a resident. Mm-hmm. And he was, he's like such a geek, technically. One of the baddest DAs, technical DAs I've ever heard in my life. He's, he's probably pound for pound the best technical DJ I've ever heard in my life. And in 1985, this boy, we, we, we had a TR, TR505 drum machine, a DX100 keyboard by Yamaha. He had, two, he had three Korg samplers. He had a homemade trigger. I'm talking about 1985. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So we're talking remixing on the fly. Mm-hmm. David Cope will come in and play live keyboards. And here and Bruce, besides three decks and a real to real, now you got the samplers. He had a box, he had he used a, a guitar pedal to sample the sample off the record. Yeah. He had a box cutter that he jimmied next, next to the mixer. Mate, 1985. Yeah, amazing. Then the other clubs, you know, came later. Uh-huh. I mean, Red Zone. Red Zone was my New York garage per se. I mean. When I played at Red Zone, first I was playing at the World because Frankie came to New York in 1987. Mm-hmm. The owner of the World he, from Chicago invited him to play at the World. They flew him in. They got him in his apartment. He was a resident on Friday. David Piccioni from Missouri was a resident on Saturday. 
David was from London. Mm-hmm. So the world was something different. It wasn't typical. Yeah, Frankie Knuckles from Chicago. House music. House music 101. Mm-hmm. 3.0. You had David Piccioni. Two amazing DJs mm-hmm. at that time. And it was different for New York. Because mm-hmm. everybody else in New York was New York house, if that makes sense. Then the promoters that were working at the world ended up opening up the Red Zone. So I was Thursday nights at the world. Frankie was Friday. David Piccioni was Saturday. Mm-hmm. All three nights, they were doing 3,000 people. Then when I got to play uh, at the Red Zone, I started in 1989. I started to go to the UK, and the UK had a big influence on me. Mm-hmm. UK and the Netherlands, yeah. you know, RMS Records. So I was doing my Red Zone mixes, and I was playing. I mean, nobody in New York was playing What Time Is Love, Kale Left. People were like, what is this record? Pump up the jam. Yeah, you were the conduit bringing those records in. People had never heard those before. No, not at all. So the Red Zone was something. And the Red Zone was a Studio 54 of that era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, I mean, their dog policy was incredible. It was like the Karam, the, the Dimitri from The Light was resident on Thursday. I was playing Friday. I was a resident Friday and Saturday. So I, it was like, besides and three decks, real to real, had a keyboard for Satoshi Tommy, had the legs. So besides records, I had the compartments for real to reels because I was playing my mixes six months in advance. So here's the red zone sound. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because the, the UK was a big influence on me for my dubs. Yeah. And we had an incredible sound system. The lighting was sick. So that's how the Red Zone became. I got popular with, with the Red Zone and the music that came because we were a hybrid of music from around the world for the people here. And because people came to Red Zone for the experience, people came in was like, wow. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a long story, eh? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, that's the perfect story. It's amazing. I mean, um, obviously along the way, you've also during that period and beyond Red Zone as well, you were remixing some of the greatest artists of all time. When in the story does that aspect of your career start to kind of ramp up? Is it after Paradise Garage and those doors start opening then in terms of production and remixing? Or is it you get a taste for it with the live remixing? I was editing first for producers. Yeah. And then in 1987... I got asked to remix Winnie Houston, Love Will Save the Day. At that time, Winnie was like, she was the queen. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, I got, I got asked to remix Winnie Houston. Damn, I'm like, whoa. I hadn't mixed that many records before. Mm-hmm. You understand? My mix was considered, I guess, too underground, technically per se. So I, I got really like hurt that they didn't want to really commercial because they it was too, I, I'll say underground. Mm-hmm. So then they had this guy, Rick Wake, at that time that was doing Taylor Dane and all these pop records. And they had him mix and they were like, oh my God. And it was like, the record company at that time didn't even know what the word house meant. Mm-hmm. It went to my 1987. So when the record company guy called me, it's like, how do you like to do house remix? And Rick Wake, it was like, this is rubbish. It's like, oh, house remix we're talking about. I was like, they don't know what house remix is about. So my second one was Imagination. It was a record called Instinctual on RCA Records. I've always been a big fan of Imagination. And at that time, Stock Aikman and Waterman were uh-huh. really big. Mm-hmm. And they did, what's that guy's name? Rick Astley. Uh, Rick Astley. I, can't, I, always, I always forget his name. Rick Astley. And so they remixed the record and it just sounded like a Rick Astley record. And I was like, because I was working at the record pool. So the promoter said, what do you think about the new... You know, then I was like, it sounds like a Rick Astley record. It, it doesn't sound like, you know, like a, like imagination. Mm. I was like, let me do a mix. It was like, okay. 
let me do a mix. I brought in Josh Milan from Blaze to do keyboard. Josh was like 18 years old. It was an Arthur Baker production. The record became popular, huge, massive. That's the record that opened the door for me. And it was off key. I remember the group, Arthur Baker was like, it's off key. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now I understand. I mean, my ear is sharp now. By that, I was like, I don't know. It sounds <laughs> fine to me. <laughs> so that's the door. That's the song that really opened doors. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So I started to do a few mixes for America, but it's really the UK that put David Morales on the map in the remixing game. Mm -hmm. I remember going to London and it was Stevie V, Dirty Cash. Mm -hmm. And I went to have a meeting and it was with this guy, um, Alan Pell. And they were like, ah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was a massive record for me at the, at the Red Zone. Yo, yo, I love this Stevie V record, Dirty Cash. It's really big for me. And they were like, yeah, we put it out. Blah, blah. So, you know, you know, they, they weren't doing nothing with it. So they would like drop it. I was like, you know, let me mix it. Mm -hmm. I mix it number two in the pop charts. <laughs> well, it was funny. You know, my name was on walls and record stores on imports. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the American companies, yeah. which is kind of ironic. Yeah. The American companies came afterwards. Mm -hmm. I mean, but it's really the UK that really gave me a lot of work. Yeah. And then, you know, then I did, I did CC Prennison, which is finally mm -hmm. massive. I did Pump Up the Jam, Technotronic massive mm -hmm. i did mr Loverman, shabba ranks and we're talking about all million sellers based on a mix all million sellers yeah. Yeah. every single one yeah that's what got me demand i was making people rich unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> i didn't make the money i got a one-time fee uh. the writers got paid the producer like i said it's like multi-platinum it was mm -hmm. like and it was like Ugh. not that it mattered to me at that time only as i reflect back yeah, I mean, some people rich and not based on their version. Mm -hmm. Or then being frank with the Alison Limerick, that's a classic in the world. Everybody knows Alison Limerick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, where, where love lives. It's like, that's like, chop. Yeah. The, the next game changer was Dream Love of Mariah Carey. Mm -hmm. They asked me to remix Mariah Carey. And I was like, I can't do nothing with that bubblegum song. And I'm like, and, and I just threw out an idea. You know, I should have to re-sing it. And they're like, okay. I was like, huh? <laughs> What will I do now? <laughs> I go in the studio with Eric Cup, okay, you know, and, and we just created with this group. Dun, 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 dun. She came in, knocked that thing out the ballpark. Wow. Mariah Carey, now people that weren't into Mariah Carey got to hear the another side of Mariah Carey. Mm -hmm. They got to hear the diva now because the original dream lover to uh, they went to this bubble gum thing to like Come on in. It just took my ride to another, to, to, oh, I get goosebumps, to another realm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and she was 21 years old. So we're talking about 30 years ago, mm -hmm. almost 30 years ago. Yeah. You know, and then I look at Jamiroquai. That was, that was like surgery. Yeah. The Miracle Space Cowboy is not, you can't follow, the remix doesn't follow the original. No. It's like cut and paste, create mm -hmm. a song out yeah. of something that didn't exist. Because JK has a band and the band is the groove. He's like Stevie Wonder, blah, 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 blah. So he's got a band, they groove. And you know, you know how JK, you listen to the original, you listen to the original. It's like, there's no song structure. It's amazing. There's no song structure. Yeah, I mean, even that is like, that is arguably bigger than the original. When I hear oh, that song sure. on the radio, it's your version that I hear. It's not the original. Once again, I got a fee. Who's getting paid? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping 
and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You know, is it? So is it? I've worked with Seal, Donna Summers, Aretha Franklin. Here's my next evolution. You know, I've, at this point, I've worked, I've worked with the best there is to work. Mm-hmm. I've been very fortunate. It's funny when I have to take the name you two to, 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 it doesn't get any bigger than Aretha Franklin, Seal, Mariah, mm-hmm. Whitney. You know what I mean? Even Julio Iglesias. We're talking about icons, legends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I do this stupid sample record in 1997 called Needing You that I did, I slapped together in three hours in my studio. Mm-hmm. So now I had to put on an acetate. I'm playing it out and DJs are like, yo, what is this track? Ah, something I just slapped together. You got to put this out. No, it's rubbish. <laughs> no. I was like, I work with Aretha Franklin. I work with so-and-so and so. I was like, this is, this is rubbish. It's just a track. I swear to God, it's like, to this day, 20 years later, it's the biggest thing I've ever done. You understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. I'm, I'm still, the record has made me the most money in my life. It's, it's hilarious. Yeah. You understand know what I'm saying? So, and the funny thing is, I had an album, my first album I had on Mercury Records. We shot two different videos. Each video, the budget was $100,000. Then you go nowhere in MTV. Nothing. So, we shoot a cheap-ass video in Ibiza that Azuli paid for, for needing you. And this shit was like number one, all these video channels in Europe. The record was like, it's in the hall of fame of, you know, summer anthems in the visa. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. you know, you have Sonique in there. You have Joe Jules. Mm-hmm. It's like all these big DJs that made cameos. It's like, there's no formula. It's ironic. 20 years later, that's two people. Yo, can you play needy? And it's like, uh, it's like, but I'm making some new records. You know what I'm saying? What about my new shit? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I was in Ibiza in that summer of 1998 and you could not move and not hear that track. It is so, um, it takes me back to that island and that summer every time I hear it. It's like, imagine for me watching the reaction that I really couldn't understand. Yeah, You have to understand, it's like, I come from a song world. It's like two old disco records, both from 1974. Mm-hmm. Disco records. Yeah. Where do you categorize needing you in reality today? In new disco. 
in the new disco category mm -hmm. because it's disco yeah. with just some beats on it. But it was like, I had to have my arm twisted. Yo, put it out. And I was like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank goodness you did. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's uh, like you say, you've just taken two tracks as well that you're probably massively familiar with already, like Rare Pleasure and the G-Lights. Of course, absolutely. And was it just a flash of inspiration? Like you said, just half an hour, just messing around, just like, bang, I'm just going to whack this. Oh, listen, I, it was all done with, uh, with a, a Kai S950 sampler. <laughs> You know what I mean? We're we're listen, we're 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 a sixteen drag sixteen track deck and child. Everything was like separated each channel, and I did everything live. Boop 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 boop. Call a day done. Finish. Wow, hilarious. That's incredible. I mean, and to talk about kind of DJing specifically, it's an art form essentially. I mean, there's a real difference between you know we're talking before we kind of really got into this about difference between just playing records and presenting them to a crowd. I mean. You've talked about the marathon 11-hour DJ sets that you've done. When you're in a room and you're doing a set like that, what are you kind of looking out for in the crowd? What pointers are they giving you as a DJ and you're feeding back to them in the story that you're telling? You have to remember, listen, I used to own a club called Stereo in Montreal. I played there from 1999 to... I, did, I played there for 10 years, every last Saturday of the month. I ended up inheriting the club or I put in my own money. It was my home, incredible sound system. It was really intense. My average set was 15 hours. My longest was 27, okay? Now, so the thing is, you have to remember, we're talking about an era that people didn't look at the DJ. Mm -hmm. People were not on their phones. We didn't have social media. We didn't have none of this rubbish. People came to the club to dance. There was no bar. People came to the club to dance. They didn't come to worship. They worshiped you in another way. They didn't have to look at you. They listened to you. You understand? Because that's what it's all about. It's like, don't look at me. I'm turning down the lights. I don't even want you to see me. There's nothing to see. So the thing is, is that it's like when people come into a place, it's like when you go to a restaurant, you're having a starter first. Mm -hmm. You're not automatically diving into the main course. You're having a starter. But yeah, you're having a cocktail first. Then you're having your, then you're having your appetizer. Then maybe you have your first course before you have your second course. You know, you started the night mellow. People just entering the room. They're not going anywhere. Yeah. They're there for the duration. Mm -hmm. They're there for the duration. Everybody knows what the game is already. So you ain't stressed shit, man. There's 10 people in the club. They're not the... Listen, when, when is your home, those 10 people went again to the club, they're dancing anyway. Mm -hmm. They're long for the foreplay. So, yo. And then when you play that long, First of all, this is where you break new music. Mm -hmm. You get that brand new record you got. How do you break that record? You play it once. The best DJs are the best selectors. The best ones have a good ear. So here you go, okay. You you get a new record. You can't wait to play at the club. And when you take a club, when, you, when you're playing for 10, 15 hours, you get that, that one record that's crazy. Guarantee you're going to play that shit five, anywhere from five to eight times, maybe even 10. You're going to wow, bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. And you're going to work that record that by the time they, they leave the next week, it's like, it's a big record. Yeah. That's how you broke a record. Because when you first play that record the first time, they don't know. It's going to be like, mm. okay, they, they, they need to digest it. Oh, that's cute. Play it again. Mm -hmm. Okay. Play it again. Okay. Play it again. And it's how you make it work. That by that time, they're like, yo, I hope he plays that record again. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I hope he plays it again. As I'm playing my my stream, it's like when I'm working on a new record, it's like when it's good and I'll feel the energy, 
I'll play twice, maybe two and a half times. I'll bring that thing back from the end, that catchy riff, and then bring it around again. It's how you worked an audience. It's how you broke records. You understand? Because you've seen the response. It's, it's there it's in front of your eyes. Is it? Listen, but you know, it's like getting Din Dada in 1983. Yo, play that shit. Play that stupid. What's that? Can you play that again? <laughs> and then by the time the people leave the club that night, you know what they're saying? Din da da do do do. This is what it is. Yeah. And that goes with any good record that's got a good top line that you bang that night. They're gonna go back inside. Yo, he played this record. I was like, bop, 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 bop. When I when I used to play at the Red Zone, when I was playing remixes six months in advance, I remember when they bought me Gypsy Woman mm -hmm. by Crystal Waters on a real to real right from the studio. Okay. Forget about it. People left the club. And I was playing that shit at the Red Zone six months before that thing they came out. And people will come specifically be like, yo, I can't wait for them to play this record. Yeah. Even when you went to law or when you went to the, when you went to the garage, when Larry was playing like the Peach Boys or certain things that was like six months in advance, it's like you would wait for that record and he teased the shit out of you. And even if he played so, so, and so, and so, but when he played that record, all is forgotten. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you will wait for that record. Finally, because the only way you were going to hear that record is when you went to the club. Mm -hmm. It wasn't available yeah. for months. And that was power. Yeah. And in terms of having that power yourself, you know, you have got these tracks that only you are playing at that time in that specific club. Do you think the scene has kind of maybe lost a little bit of that in terms of like people not necessarily being resident DJs, not having longer sets, all these types of things? 100%. Where I've taken that back now with my stream, my Sunday Mass stream now that's become very popular. This is exactly what I'm doing. So let's say I'm featuring a couple of new tracks on my album. And my album ain't coming out till next year. There's this one record, some, uh, it's called um, it's called No Bondage. I'm gonna feel to, to um, I just wanna be free because that's the hook, really. But anyway, it's a 14 year old English girl. Her name is Tilly. Mm -hmm. I got people, yo, yo, are you gonna play the Tilly track? Are you gonna play the Tilly track? It's not available, you understand? And the only way they'll hear it is if they tune into Sunday Mass. And that goes with some of the other things that I'm playing. You know what I'm saying? That That's mine. Mm -hmm. Nobody has it. So let's take that back because I'm the resident. You know what I'm saying? I'm the resident. When I first started playing Tilly, when I dropped that thing, you know, and then I work on a different intro for it, where I'll, I'll mess with the people. Oh, shit, it's a Tilly record. <laughs> and then, you know, and like I said, and then it goes, I won't play all the time. Like, I'll change up. One week, I can play some disco. One week, I'll play some funk or whatever. But then it's like, then you're the following me. It's like, oh, yes, that's the Tilly record. But this is a problem that has gone away with not having a resident, mm -hmm. a residency. There's no continuity. Let's say needing you, for example. Let's go back to 1998, mm -hmm. where there was Carl Cox, George Jules. Everybody was on the same waveform playing the same music. Mm -hmm. So records got broken. What was the track of the summer? What was the track of the moment? That's lost. Yeah. So when you go now, when you got so much music, it's nice that listen, it's nice that there's so much music going on because I'm part of the evolution and there's a lot of great stuff out there. I'm not here to diss anything. What, what the, the, the problem is, and it's not just in our format, it's in every format, mm -hmm. whether it's hip hop, whether it's R&B, there's too much information on the internet in general. So this is why things are getting lost. Now it's worse when you have all these different DJs, there's no resident. So you have all these different DJs every single week playing at clubs and everybody's all over the place. So unless it's some, it's some commercial 
feed them, blah, 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 blah. Everything else is like, it's unknown. So you, you don't come off saying, what was the track of the summer? When space closed a couple of years ago, it was all those classic records that made the night. Mm -hmm. That was the history of space. And it wasn't really anything from the last five years. I mean, the closing record was um, Missing You by uh, Angie Stone. Angie Stone. They play finally. They play those records. People are like, oh my God, oh my God. It's like, boom. No, I mean, you mentioned your new album there. How much can you tell us about that? Obviously, you said it's coming out next year, which is 2021. When you create an album, how do you approach that? Do you always have a concept or theme in mind? Or is it just something, a collection of tracks that you want to put together? Or how do you kind of approach putting that together, specifically this new one as well? Well, I started I started a new label called The Rhythm Records. Mm -hmm. And I decided to, to relaunch um, a new label so I can release my music and what I'm into today. And there's many things I'm into. I mean, I, you know, I'm into tech, I'm into disco, I'm into, I'm into uh, tech house. I, techno new i mean i'm into everything i don't just i'm just not into one one kind of thing so um i had like i had the red zone album that's all my darker stuff mm -hmm. my fourth album is really about songs per se working with some new artists different textures of sounds but that are songs mm -hmm. so i have joy carwell i have janice robinson i have this this girl from italy her name is michelle who else? Uh, Tamara Keenan that has done cuts on on, on my last two albums. Mm -hmm. it's, so it's different things. I, I was going to release it next month, but because of everything that has been going on this year, all the negativity and all like, you know, I want my music to be heard. Yeah, You know what I'm saying? I want it to be heard. And right now, I mean, it's really difficult for me to even put out records today, but I, I need to put out music because I have so much music. Um, so I'm putting out music anyway on a monthly basis. The problem is that the albums don't really sell today. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, people really like singles driven, streaming. But, you know, I mean, I feel that my fourth album, uh, you know, it's just something that I want to do as opposed to, listen, if, if I got an album with 20 cuts, if I try to think about releasing them one at a time, I'm going into 2022 right now. You understand? Because I'm constantly in the studio making records, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. With the evolution of the new technology, I've really, it's given me more hands-on because I come from the old school that you had to rent a studio, you had an engineer to run things, you know, everything was too complicated and it wasn't a one-man show. Like today, it's like a one-man show. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You can work on a plane, you can work in a car, you work at the airport, you can just go to the, to, to the pub and set up your laptop, headphones, have a beer and like, you know, and work yeah so i mean you know so now i pushed it back to next year which is okay i mean give me some time team and just experiment some more there's a lot of new talent out there mm -hmm. as i buy records and i listen to people it's like oh I'm, I'm interested in working with that artist i like challenging things mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's like i've had some people like you know that done tv shows and blah 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 you know it's like commercial rubbish it's like i want billy ellish you know what i'm saying <laughs> i want that it's like, so I'm, I'm going with my arm. It's like, I want that next thing. That's why I, I want that 14 year old girl that blew me away. And it's like, and, and I'm going to do two songs with her on my album. And she's 14. She's amazing. So that's where my head is at. I need to evolve. You know what I'm saying? So it's not about the safe artists that are out there that have been abused already. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? There's a lot of great new talent out there. Listen, there's a lot of great new producers, great new DJs, great new singers. I was one of those young kids at one time. You know, I went into new artists because I like to be challenged. 
and a, a new person from a new generation. That's amazing. I want to tap into them and wait and take them to another level. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So it's, so it's that marriage. Yeah. Because I don't want to be safe. There is no formula. I want the next Billy Ellis. Mm-hmm. Well, for, formula is almost experience, isn't it? And you, you've been in this game for four decades worth of having that ear and seeing how people respond. It's just bringing that experience into someone else's world and, you know, helping them achieve that next level, like you said. Correct. No, for sure, because I've worked with some young folk and they're like, and it's really teaching them how to be better in themselves because the producer's job really is you need to direct. It's like a director directing actors. You're directing it's like they're, they're good, but they're as good as a director is. And sometimes no matter how great of a singer a singer is, they need to be produced. So at the same time, it's like, you know, I work with some people, they're like, oh my God, it's like, <laughs> it's funny. It's like they get nervous because they know who you work with. And that's like, for me, it's like, yo, listen, listen, relax. You know what I mean? But it's how you relate to them to get the best out of them. And yes, yeah, so they walk away and say, you help people become better. Why not? So I've been listening to your Sunday mass sessions and they are incredible. Anyone, any of our listeners who have not tuned into these, I can't recommend them highly enough. Can you just take us through the thinking behind them and how you've kind of set them up and what kind of things that you play when you're broadcasting these things live across, uh, across the world? Yeah, it's the thing that's giving me some sanity. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bet. It's really interesting because it's really um, taking things back to basics. Mm-hmm. You know, it's either you really have the love for what you do or you don't. Yeah. When I, it's funny because when I started with the streaming, right in this same studio right now, what you're looking at, just like this with this phone, mm-hmm. with the music loud, without a sound card, without any cameras. And it was just something just like, just to do something. And I never knew Sunday Mass would become what it is. Mm-hmm. It was just, let me do something that was kind of cute, interesting. You know what I mean? And you get up and you're the and you're, you're going to play some of my tunes, you know what I mean? And then, you know, I, I understood where the game was going, mm-hmm. which was, you know, a lot of people tuned in. Mm-hmm. So then it was about, okay, let me take this to the next level, which, okay, that means webcam, that means a sound card. So my sound quality can be better. Yeah. Because when you hear from a speaker, you know, then you have to watch the volume, it could distort, la, la, la. So then I got into the sound card. You know, and then it was trying to find a webcam, find a webcam. So everything was a learning curve as far as and then it just became something that I never thought I turned it into a, really like my virtual own radio show mm-hmm. because it's live and I talk. I'll talk about some experiences, um, you know, in Sunday Mass. It's like my club. Mm-hmm. I am the warm up DJ. I'm the headliner. Yeah. And I'm going to close it. <laughs> <laughs> so and that's what I mean back to basics because back in the days, you know, you had to program your whole night. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. well not program, what I mean by program, you had to play the whole night. Yeah. And it gives you the freedom that you can play what you want, mm-hmm. take the audience on the journey that you want. Because the big problem today when you go to play in places and they book of DJs, there's no continuity. Yeah. Everybody's in their own world. Mm-hmm. So you got a kid that comes in that doesn't understand how to open up when even the opening DJ is a really important slot because you set the pace. Or you got a kid that comes in, doesn't understand nothing about volume, doesn't understand about anything, and he right away comes in, he's just fucking smashing it. And there's nobody in the fucking room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So imagine you got this kid that's like fucking banging, and it's like, yo, and you have to follow that. Mm-hmm. Because it's different, like, for my Sunday match, so I can think, oh, you know what? I could do some some homework during the week and be like, oh, you know what? This week I want to play some disco. Or, like, last week I did all 90s death mix stuff, mm-hmm. which people really enjoyed. And... 
you can take people on the journey. You can tell a story. You understand? Because you control the momentum. Yeah. And my studio is top notch. My equipment is top notch. My monitors. My shit is correct. I'm fortunate. I'm one of those DJs that I demand my own monitors where, you know, sometimes it's a setup, the energy. You, you never know what you're walking into. Mm -hmm. I'm a very sensitive, organic guy that the little things can affect my set. I'm not some automatic pilot kind of guy. And I, it's the only show I do I, that I do live. I don't pre-record Sunday Mass. It's live. It's turned with like my favorite gig right now because I can play what I want. You understand? Mm -hmm. And the people that tune in Sunday Mass, they want me. So now 10 months later, it's like I've spoiled my audience. They know quality music. You understand yeah. what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. They expect nothing less. And that means... I'll play stuff, my history of what influenced me, what's been my journey as a DJ. Mm -hmm. So people can understand where this all came from. The DJ history, it started with music from the 60s to the 70s, but there's something to be said about music from back then that was so special. The songs themselves had a story. The showmanship, the singers, the lyrics, the production, the engineering. It's like, wow. So it's exciting where I can play things because it's my party, right? <laughs> it's my house. So I have no restriction. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have to worry about some fucking idiot going, yo, what's up? You know what I mean? Yo, um, you know, can you play needing you or blah, 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 blah. Or, you know, or, or some rubbish is mm -hmm. like, I've developed a core audience mm -hmm. that really that tune in. And, and it's like, you know, like the old days when friends all went to the same club and they caught up, you know what I mean? And they danced with each other and they had a conversation with each other. It's amazing to be able to do this virtually, which I never in a million years expected this. I've been doing radio shows for the longest, you know, mm -hmm. besides painting clubs. When I had to do you know, a one hour show for a radio station, it, it was always boring because I got no audience. I mean, it was like, uh, or to the motions. I need an audience. I need interaction. Yeah. So on my phone, I, you know, I'm checking with people. Okay, what's going on with the comments and you know, and interacting with people. I go from a minimum of three hours to four, maybe five. Amazing. You understand? Yeah. Which, which is not normal for a regular one DJ stream. Mm -hmm. But the longer I go, the more viewers I get. So it's just become something that I really look forward to. And after a Sunday mass, I feel like I played an amazing gig at a club. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, listen, I dance, yo, know, I have a shot, I have a beer. Yo, know, it's like I'm at a party. I mean, but it's a virtual party. Mm -hmm. But the people get the energy. There's a core audience that's Solid on YouTube, let's say it's at least 250, That's solid. It's like, you know, the clubbers, and, and we'll understand, yo, there's a line outside at the club. It's going to be hot tonight because a lot of people just do streams, and all you do is play records like a lot of guys in the booth. You don't look at your audience, you don't even relate to your audience. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that they just, you're just playing music. It's interacting with people, being funny. Like I said, thank God that has worked for me in that kind of way. Yeah. This thing has had me refocus yeah. in a positive way. That when I go back out there, I'm in, I'm in a better position because I've laid some groundwork because of my Sunday mass. Mm -hmm. Now it's like, we want that. We want that David Morales. What makes a great DJ is your selection. Mm -hmm. It's not how great of a mixer you are. Yeah. It's not the tricks. The tricks is something else. The science is something else. 
But the fundamental is, what do you have to say? Mm-hmm. What do you have to say? Yeah, I'm conscious that I've been keeping you. I told you. <laughs> okay, I so told you. <laughs> I, I'd kind of wrap this up with the one last question that we always ask all of our guests. You know, we are house culture, and you are part of the fabric of the house music culture with your long list of uh, remixes, productions, all the things you've done for the scene. What does this whole house music scene kind of mean to you when you when you take stock and re- time to reflect? Like you said, you've had some time uh, recently to kind of look back and reflect on it. What, what, does this, what does this scene mean to you personally? You know, I've been in the scene pre-house. Mm-hmm. You know, I've lived to different styles of music in my career from what's called funk to disco to euro house music you know what i mean because what you when you take the house the original house is really something different the the really raw chicago house is really something really different I mean, there's there's some rawness there that's really organic that's something that's really totally different house music per se was a game changer now today everything is a derivative of house music you know what i mean but there's there's there's, there's so many labels today from um what do i just want to say tropical house to deep house to this kind of house it's like there's so many variations of it mm-hmm. which once again here we talk about the evolution where everything has has evolved from it you know what i'm saying you know i, I played my first chicago record in 1985 it was james silk music was a key on dj international Somebody gave me a test pressing from Chicago. I was like, oh my God, it was like, it was something new. Mm. And anyway, here we are, you know, and to, it, it, it was the only thing I can say, I was one of the first New York American DJs besides the Chicago crew. So I'll say New York, but one of the first New York guys to play house music, one of the top three probably, um, besides the Chicago crew, the Chicago, you know what I mean? I remember the first house mix that took everything over the top was Steve Hurley's remix of Michael Jackson, Remember the Time, where he time-stretched the vocals and he made a house track out of it. A four, let's say a four on the floor. And it was what every radio station played. They didn't play the original. It took over what dance music is about. And here we are today. So it is EDM, house music. Mm-hmm. And it's all based from that. I mean, what do people call house today? If you go on to a store to buy what is house, I don't know. What does that mean anymore? It's very personal when you really say house music. It's like, it's so far from what it really stood for. You understand? What is house? You know what I'm saying? It's like, it was just raw. And that was the beauty of that shit. That that shit was raw. And it was different. It was that minimal thing. It was that bass, that doom, 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 doom. It was like, yo. But it's all machine driven. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it was a 707, 727, and a 909. That's it. <laughs> um, what's next for um, for David Morales after you know the album is going to come out next year? What you know? What have you, what is out there still left for you to achieve? Do you think? Um, I want to. I want to. How do I say? I'm not rich enough. I'm not rich to be a philanthropist. I really would like to somehow do more to make a difference in the world, mm-hmm. which has nothing to do with music. 
it's funny. I, I was I was speaking to someone the other day, and I said, um, you know, you see people, you know, that have ideas, or you know how to make money to do things. I was like, man, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, I wasn't born one of these brains, and I was like, but I do have one. I make music. I'm good at that. It's a commodity. I can make money. Yes, I have. Duh. <laughs> so. You know, I, I always, yes, you know, obviously I'm at a different age where how much do you really need? I mean, really. At home, I'm comfortable with a sofa. Like, give me a 75-inch TV. Perfect. <laughs> Other than that, it's like, do I need multiple houses? I don't even have a car today. And I've had cars. I've had exotic cars. But for what? I ain't going nowhere. There are people that are starving out there. I watch the news every single day. I wake up in the morning. I look at my phone. News. Then when I go downstairs, I watch news on four different channels to get all the news. And, you know, some people can't complain about what they're going through. There's somebody out there that has it so much harder mm -hmm. that even though, okay, some of us, we feel we're on lockdown. Okay, we're, we're inconvenienced in our lives. There are some people that don't have proper drinking water don't have the basic necessities. It's like, you're still rich. Some of us are still, are still rich next to somebody else that has it so much worse. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? If I was billion or even hundreds of millions, you know I mean, I, I look at all these people, the Kanye West, the Kardashians, and the, the beyond, and then all these people, it's like, you, know, you got all this money, and you got private jets, you got all this nothing, but it's like, wh where's your sense of fulfillment that you have paid it forward? Mm -hmm. Like, really? education yes i yes i know it's difficult you know what i mean because you don't just want to throw your money somewhere where it's mismanaged anyway when you ask me something one of my dreams is to really spend some time like a month or two with monks that's like on my bucket list just reset yeah i mean this moment has brought me to reset in many ways you know I, everybody knows you know i i spent some time some time in prison uh, uh about a year and a half ago in japan that was my biggest reset. That's real reset. People don't know what lockdown is. <laughs> I know what lockdown is. You know what I mean? But that was that was my biggest reset. Mm. That's like when you're stripped of everything, your freedom, your dignity. You understand? Mm. So that was that for me. That was my that was my my biggest reset. I mean, because when you live a life that you're constantly on the run, and that goes for most people. You live every day. It just goes from day to day to week to week to week. You never have time to stop and reflect. And even when you think you stop, you don't stop. And for me, the stop was, was no communication, no television, no radio, no nothing, just you and your thoughts. That's reset. When all you have is time to think and reflect on your past up until the moment where you are. And then, and then so now we come to this. This, this thing was a reset for me as far as, as my career. That, that that's what this reset was about with the streaming and everything is the evolution of my career reset to stop stop the traveling and i'm lucky that i have a studio that i work on music some people don't have that luxury lucky i have a setup to stream some guys don't have that luxury I feel bad for a lot of the djs that you know some of us were lucky that we had a little nest egg on the side mm -hmm. you understand that help us carry us nobody knew we would go this long yeah. and it's going to go even longer mm -hmm. at least for the next six months mm -hmm. case closed yeah so imagine now and with everything it's been a reset for a lot of people 
Mm-hmm. And some people are going to come out of it in good terms, and some are going to come out with with scars. Mm. Well, and hope, but hopefully, everyone will realize what's important. I think afterwards, health and freedom is the most important. Everything else after that is a luxury, and that's for sure. That is probably the perfect thought to kind of end on. I think everything else is a luxury. Trust me when I tell you. You know what I'm saying? Amazing. Perfect. Well, I'm not going to bug you with any more questions. That's awesome. I thought it would be a long one. It could be it could go, keep going and going and going <laughs> and going and going. No worries. All right, handsome. All right, buddy. Ciao. House culture. How good was that? The man's an absolute icon, right? I don't know about you, but I loved hearing about David's journey through four decades of dance music. He really has done it all, hasn't he? Also can't wait to hear his new album coming out in 2021. Also, for those uninitiated, make sure you tune in to David's incredible Sunday Mass broadcasts. Catch them live every week across YouTube and Mixcloud. Honestly, it's one of the best things out there. The man plays it all and it's a real treat to be able to watch him at work in his natural habitat. Okay, you might have noticed that we didn't manage to get any submissions for our perfect playlist on Spotify. However, I've added the following ones that we chatted about. These are the OJs, Put Your Hands Together, which was the first 7-inch that David ever bought. Double Exposures, 10%, which was the first 12-inch that David ever bought. I've added George Kranz's Dindada, which was that infectious track that had him running to the booth back in 1983. I've also added the first house record he got from Chicago in 1985, which was J.M. Silk's Music is the Key. And finally, it had to be done. His biggest track to date and something he knocked together in the studio in a few hours. Of course, it's that piano monster needing you. If you want to hear those submissions, please open up your Spotify player, search for House Culture Perfect Playlist, and there you'll find not only the tracks pulled from my chat with Mr. Morales, but choices from every guest we've had on both seasons of the podcast so far. There's all kinds of stuff in there covering every facet of house music culture and more. So give it a shuffle and turn it up loud. Once you're listening to that, please help support this podcast by loving, liking, tweeting, sharing and rating or reviewing us on Apple. Please, it's really important. It does make a difference. So get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. And if you say something nice enough... We could give you a mention on a future episode. This time around, we have to give a shout out to the man like Dave Sargent, who got in touch to tell me how much he enjoyed our chat with the godfather of rave himself, Slipmat, and is looking forward to our upcoming episodes with even more legendary characters from the world of dance music. Thanks, Dave. I promise you won't be disappointed. And if you want to join us as House Culture from wherever you might be in the world, please hit up our Instagram feed at housecultureNet or follow the hashtag true house culture not only will you be fully informed about the podcast you'll also get connected with other house music lovers from across the globe and finally if you want to get in touch with me matt rouse you can do it directly on instagram at dj matt rouse thanks for listening stay safe and see you next time house culture Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.